More TV superheroes, just what the world needs. Ugh. Warning. DC on R&D, the Doom Patrol edition, contains adult language and discussions, as well as the occasional sexually explicit joke, and from time to time, some crude and off-color remarks. If you're easily offended, don't continue to listen. And then go fuck yourself. All right, hello, welcome everyone to DC and R&D, the Doom Patrol edition. I am Michael, your host. You can find this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search DC and RMD Doom Patrol Edition. Or if you want access to all of our DC-related content, you can search for our main feed by simply typing in DC on RMD. Also, our preferred place for you to listen is iTunes because we need those ratings and reviews. So please be sure to give us a five-star rating as it does trigger the algorithms that we need in order to help our show get seen by more people. So there's little things that people can do out there, Dave, that actually helps with the show, helps us get out there. And they don't even have to spend a dime. You can if you want, but uh, but you don't have to. Yeah. All right. So you and I are here only again, Dave, no Paul. Paul is um, maybe a Dada bird took him away. Yeah, I, actually, I was going to say he is the bird now. He, is he the just bird. it's just his face and wings, <laughs> and he has flown away. And he has flown away. Yeah. So we are going to be talking about season three, episode eight, titled "Subconscious Patrol," written by Tanya Steele and directed by Rebecca Rodriguez. David, I bet you don't know who Rebecca Rodriguez is, do you? No, the f- name does the name doesn't ring a bell. She is Robert Rodriguez's sister. No who, way. Who has become really? a director. Yeah, she's been directing since 2009, but it was little things and then um she has done a variety of television shows, so that seems to be her thing is directing TV. Huh. Yeah, and she will also be she will also be the showrunner with Robert Rodriguez of an upcoming reimagining of Zorro for TV. See, that's that's actually really cool. I did not realize that that that's actually uh, in the same family, and, and and that's actually kind of cool because we don't have many like family trees nowadays yeah. that are that are as, um, I guess you could say like more uh, out there that mainstream audiences yeah. might know. Yeah, honestly, I'm surprised more of Robert Rodriguez's family isn't working like hardcore in the film industry because he has literally put the hat of filmmaking on so many of his family members <laughs> because at this point you're like are any of you guys actually grabbing this and running with it because if robert rodriguez was my father i'd be like thank you dad <laughs> thank you dad i'm gonna go write and direct now <laughs> and, and that's the thing it's kind of like i think that's like from the old school method of him constantly using his family in the in the past when yeah. he was first breaking into film yeah so I was actually keeping a close eye in on Rebecca's tactics as a director because I'm curious to see what her style is. And yes, there isn't really room to flex that type of creative muscle in an episode of TV, as we know, or maybe people don't know. But as we have discussed numerous times, television directing is very different than feature film directing. For the most part, when you're directing TV, you're you're almost like a parachute director. You parachute in, you help with some director with some actors, you uh, 
help block out some shots here and there. But for the most part, the, the design and the set and everything is pretty much already figured out by the showrunner and the uh, cinematographer. Yeah. So, and also it depends. Every TV set is a little different. Uh, sometimes the showrunners give directors a little bit more free, free reign, more freedoms. I've been seeing that a lot lately, especially with like the streaming the, shows, the streaming shows, yeah. the bigger streaming shows. You see the big name directors and the showrunner will take a step back and say, Oh, I'm going to let that guy control that episode because he probably has a bigger name than I do. <laughs> and also here, I guess we're talking shop here, but also there's a lot of so-called showrunners that are in charge of streaming shows right now that aren't really experienced. They're not veterans. So they probably don't fully understand the dynamics of a television set and that's not me being a pretentious know-it-all douche that's the facts there's the facts there there is there's so many streaming shows right now so many streaming services so many original programs coming from all types of new tv shows or tv channels that there was a report put out i want to say six months ago uh, by the daily variety that there is not enough talent people who and when they said talent they then clarify there's not enough experienced people to go around to all of these new shows and the quality of many of these shows are starting to dip um because because the visuals are so gorgeous and it's very high quality people tend to think all these shows are great but when you really dig into it and see what they're doing and the writing you see where it is suffering. But for the most part, yeah. the mainstream doesn't pay attention to that. They look at what's pretty like, Oh, look at this looks amazing. It looks like a feature film, big budget. So they don't stop and consider, Oh, wait a second. This is actually not that great. <laughs> it looks good. It's like a hot chick with no substance. You know, it's like exactly you know, big boobs are great, but can she have a conversation with you? Probably I mean, not. Well, I mean, think about it. I mean, lately, I mean, I would say the last five years, I've been seeing a basically a, a, a spike in like seeing like actors become directors, yeah, and directors <clears throat> directors becoming showrunners, and it really does show that there's not a lot of talent when people are actually jumping quote unquote jumping the lane and saying, Hey, I'm an actor. I'm going to jump up to director or I'm a director. I'm going to jump up to television and do show running instead. Guess who are the worst showrunners right now, Dave feature film directors. Yes. They are some of the worst worst showrunners because they don't understand when you think they should, they don't understand that there's a big difference between writing a movie and writing Writing TV. TV. It's very, very different. And they try to work on their television show, like it's an extended feature film. And many times it feels like a meandering disjointed mess because they're not following the traditions of television writing. They're trying to make a nine hour movie. Exactly. And that doesn't work. It doesn't work. There's been a few, there's been a few that have managed to pull it off, but very few. I would say, yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd go out there and actually literally say there it's very few. There, there have been some, some uh you know success stories yeah but majority i would say majority of the time it does not go well yeah. because like unfortunately people of uh, filmmakers nowadays don't really understand that 
the differences between TV and film. And that sounds yeah, very pretentious yeah. of me, but it, no, it's the it's, honest yeah, truth. It's what, yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah, I mean, I've seen way too many people think that they, because I've written something or I script write something, I can direct. No, you can't. Yeah. You, do, have you had the experience? You don't know what it's like. Look at David calling out people. Like, <laughs> you don't know what it's like. <laughs> you you have not gone to school. You don't know the pain. <laughs> you don't know the pain. Yeah. All right. So let's get into this episode here. The synapses. While the fog obscures more than just the air, Vic, Cliff, Jane, and Larry must relive their most shameful moments until a breakthrough occurs. And Rita begins to better understand Madame Rouge. And the audience is confused as fuck. (laughs) Very. So just to set the tone here, this episode was good, but there's also some very contradictory elements that prevent me from saying this episode is exceptional because it comes off a bit convoluted. Now, if we remove the aspects of the subconscious confronting the conscious Let's separate that for a second. All of that is A+. All of it. The characters themselves, A+. But then some of the fleshing out of the myth arc and some of the reveals, it was muddled and didn't quite cut through. So we'll get into that towards the end of the discussion today. But for now, let's start with some of the more metaphysical aspects of the episode that requires a keen eye and a fine tooth comb. Multiple rewatches. Yeah, exactly. So this episode was highly metaphysical. Uh, The story was written on the foundation of some deeply contemplative philosophical schools of thought, delving into the interactions of the subconscious and the conscious mind where portions of the subconscious relive horrible moments that the conscious self lived through in a kind of fucked up metaphysical codependent loop. And I say codependent loop because it 100% is that, which ties right back to the beginning of the season's theme, which was heavily built on the concept of codependency. Yes. And now we see this codependency between the subconscious And the conscious. And the conscious. Yeah. So all of which was designed, all of this was designed to have our protagonists face their subconscious selves. Which they needed. In an attempt to explain how certain memories and their subconscious refusal to work through them are their biggest culprits behind the conscious self's problems. And and the thing I really enjoyed was the fact that it wasn't just a very straight everyone... Uh, like their the conscious self were were just fighting against their subconscious self. They were actually say, showing different ways of you know like denial. Yeah, you know exactly. it, it, it wasn't just a straight oh this this and this. No, they showed different ways of how you can basically lie to yourself. You're absolutely right, Dave. In fact, every single character i can't say i have a shared experience as in like verbatim i never decapitated my wife i never (laughs) you know left my child in the back of a car however every single moment with those characters that we saw i feel like every one of us can connect to each one of those 
if we look back at our life, something we've done at some point, we can we can relate to some aspect of our character's subconscious selves because what they live through because it it all relies on the theme of regret and shame and who who doesn't have that yeah and if you if you if if you you don't you're not a human exactly if you don't you're You're a sociopath or if you don't you actually do you're just lying to yourself (laughs) (laughs) it's perfect that is exactly right uh but yeah that the episode the way this all was was explained uh was very intelligent and also illuminating because we learned a lot and we were given our most concrete air quotes here. This is what we are up against this season. Okay. For example, the antagonist, and I love this part. We don't have any. Yes. Unless you look at the subconscious selves, the antagonists are in fact the doom patrol subconscious or in Kay's case, Jane which is her version of the subconscious self, which is fucked up as it is. Yeah, that's fucked. Um, But the sisterhood of Dada and Lady DeMille are simply narrative obstacles. They're not any, they're not really playing into those full elements of the true antagonist. You can kind of say the same thing in previous seasons um, where the antagonist can be looked. You can look at the doom patrol's own issues, their own trauma as the, antagonist but not like this because you still had in season one you had mr nobody in season two you had the candle maker and to some degree niles himself but this season we don't have that definitive baddie lord demille is more of an obstacle she's more of a foil more than anything she isn't a true antagonist and i like that i like that this episode episode Eight became the episode where we realized that the true antagonists of this season are the Doom Patrol subconscious. Yes. That's the problem. This episode that it points out, this is an episode where I could point out where I understand where there are people out there that do not get Doom Patrol. While Doom Patrol yeah. is critically accepted, I mean, the majority of people out there think it's great. There are people out there that just, critically, critically, yeah. people love it from, from a critical standpoint. There's, there's some of the, the mainstream audience, mainstream struggle with it a bit, a lot, yeah, because this isn't your typical superhero show where you know character A is the good guy, character B is the bad guy. No, it doesn't work like that. It's also not a light watch. This isn't a light viewing that no. you that you could be like, "Oh, I'm going to have a good time tonight. It's Friday night. I'm going to flip it on at 8 p.m. I'm going to feel awesome afterwards." No. You're probably going to feel a little sad. It's definitely not the sad. show you want to watch right before you go to bed cuz then you'll have depressing dreams. This is the type of show you watch first in a series yeah. of TV shows and you end it on a rerun of Seinfeld. Then and you fall asleep on that. If you, if you look at it like in comparison to like the Marvel shows, the Marvel shows are very, you know, fundamental. They're basically straight arrow. Simple. You know, simple. you have simple. Yeah. You simple. have Character A, character B, that's it. And then a theme. Yeah, which works for that. But this show is something very different. Oh, no. This show deals with so many things. And it's amazing. And it's something that me and you have gone back and forth about, about the fact that Carver has been fantastic with juggling so many balls in the air when it comes to this story. You're pretty good at juggling balls, too, I heard. Oh, so stupid all right dave so i i remember what i was gonna say now so backtracking just a bit the sisterhood of dada and lady demille 
are just the narrative obstacles. And you can kind of say the same thing in previous seasons, but in retrospect, everything we've seen has actually worked to get us to this moment in season three. And that's something Carver has always done very well, even during his days on, on supernatural calling the shots as the showrunner. He did similar things. For example, season one's antagonist was Mr. Nobody. As I had stated earlier, season two's antagonist was the candle maker. And as I mentioned, Niles to some degree, to some degree. And these were aspects that would clear the path for season three's blistering indictment of the doom patrols past and their subconscious inability or refusal to let go and move on, which again goes right back to another thematic element that we talked about in depth earlier in the season. They are stuck in a loop of agony, pain and regret. Yeah. And they, they won't get out until they have a breakthrough. Yeah. And you know, this isn't regurgitating. There was a moment during this episode and maybe even last episode. And I didn't mention it during our previous discussion because I was going to wait to see. And I'm glad I'm wrong. I had thought that we were going to be regurgitating similar trauma from the first season. And I'm like, we've already dealt with these problems. But then we realized that what season one did was simply lay down the foundation for this very moment in season three. What you see in season one is just the tip of the iceberg. Yes. The, the season three basically started showing us the body of the iceberg that was underneath the water. And you begin to actually, the thing I really like was while the themes and the, and the ideas for each character may be similar, they're taken to a different degree. They're, there's very they're, different. Yeah. They're, they're shown that basically, okay, we figured out the basics of your trauma. Now we're going to actually show you that there's different because of that trauma. This is how it translates to your life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you could have easily seen, it, it be redundant with Cliff with a, with his character arc, but it just strengthens what we it already just knew. Strengthens yeah. what we already knew, and it it adds that further element now that basically Cliff's story is truly sad because yeah. like it took him to have that breakthrough to realize he's a shit person and he's a shit dad, but his true trauma is really being neglectful of his daughter. Right, exactly. And that's that's the sad part about it is that he, I, I feel like we could definitely say he's officially fallen back into his old habits, which he refused to acknowledge until yes. his subconscious purposely placed him into the loop. The loop. That a part of him obviously continually relives, but he tries to ignore it. He's reminded of his guilt and shame and... This part was extremely powerful and the just the way it was said by Brendan Fraser brought and actually I had tears in my eyes when he said this. This this lifestyle that ended this selfish lifestyle, this need for validation ended with the death of his wife. And when the subconscious cliff said I decapitated my wife. Yes. That was very telling. It revealed the amount of pain Cliff lives with. It wasn't even I killed myself and my wife. Like I killed myself. If he would have included himself in that, it would have taken away from 
the powerful statement because it would have been more of him being selfish. I killed myself. I'm dead. He wasn't even in that equation. It was I killed my wife. I decapitated my wife. And that statement was the most evolved and healthy comment Cliff's ever uttered or admitted. Yeah. Accepting blame and not making it about himself. Yes. That, and then, it was it was hard to watch. It and, was. And, and this is why Brendan Fraser uh, was an A-list celebrity for so many years. Dude, I was I was so giddy. He's when, earning his paycheck from that scene. Yeah, I was actually giddy when we got to see Brendan Fraser again in his human form. Human and he, form. And he's like, he was like, oh, you look you look worse than I thought. When and they then, started cussing at each other yes. when they first saw each other. What the fuck? No, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then he, and then the robot, uh, as robot man, Cliff basically goes, you look amazing. Yeah. Moisturizer, dude. It's all moisturizer. <laughs> and like that, mo- that Cliff's entire story in this episode was my number one favorite thing going on because you, he realizes that, right? He has that breakthrough, but then it's too late by the end. Because that moment when he comes out of it and yeah. he realizes that he's he still just, in front of the computer. He, yeah, and he used his daughter's yeah. credit card and which his daughter's we were, behind him. Which we were debating that last episode. We were like, oh, at least he didn't, you know, use her credit card. Well, he yep. did. He did. And yeah. then, like, his daughter was just right behind him. And the defeat in Cliff when he ba- when she basically says, I'm, I'm done. Yeah. And then he just basically goes, uh, I know. He agreed. He, he knew agreed. he messed up. Yeah. And it was it was the saddest moment this well, episode because I, we all know Cliff's a shit person. But at that moment, I really felt sorry for a shit person. I don't think he's a shit person. I think he's um, like Rita to me is a shit person because she's completely aware of the things that she has done. Cliff is a true victim First off, he's not entirely intelligent, okay? And when you're not entirely in- intelligent, it's hard for you to be completely aware <laughs> self-aware. of yourself, self-aware. And sure, he is self-aware when he's being retrospective and he's talking to his subconscious self. But for the most part, he's a very simple person. And the fact that he needs validation and he needs to feel special, I, I don't put him in the same category as someone like Rita, who, yes, Rita also had a horrible upbringing, a horrible life. She witnessed her mother having sex with guys so that she can, you know, further her daughter's career. That's awful. That's awful. But Rita is also, there's also an awareness to her. She's aware. Yeah. She's completely aware of the things she does and she still does them. So th- that's the difference. Now you bring up Cliff and this the idea that he's aware that he messed up when his daughter said, I don't think this is working. Yes. And he agreed that goes right back to a similar thing with Jane. And the fact that Jane is the toxic person in this entire thing. And that's, that's, and this is about removing the toxicity. And that's why Cliff was willing to accept that he messed up to his daughter because he realizes that he needs to remove himself because he's going to end up dragging people down. And the same thing can be said with the Jane scenario here. And though everyone's moment of reveals, they were sad and each of them were sad in their own way. Jane Jane's comes with some heavy implications. Uh, First, the part that gets a little uh, confusing at times 
Jane isn't a part of Kay's conscious self. No. She's technically a part of her subconscious, so the implications here are very unsettling to someone like Jane. Kay made it clear that she no longer wants to be pushed to the subconscious, and she wants to be in control. She wants to be the conscious self. Yes. And what's worse, she blames Jane for every bad thing that's happened to her. And that's harsh because it's one thing having yourself, like meaning yourself, like Cliff, Larry, and Vic to contend with. Yes. Essentially blaming yourself, looking at yourself in the mirror. But Jane isn't just a manifestation of her subconscious. She's a real person. Yes. That has one purpose to protect Kay. And Jane was told that she's the cause of many of her problems. And now Jane is facing not just an existential crisis, but her own mortality because Kay is going to deem her unnecessary. Yes. If she had that type of breakthrough, Kay had that type of breakthrough that these people are actually hurting her. They're doing more harm than good at this point. Then they will be not only stuffed to the back of her mind, but removed from the board. And this was something that, as funny as it sounds, ever since we got introduced to Jane in the first season, I have been waiting for a moment like this where you come to the realization that Jane is the problem within K because Jane is the enabler. She's the one that basically we got to do this for K. We got to do, we're protecting K. But in actuality, she never really listened to K. The, well, the problem is, is yes, you're right. You're not wrong. She is a bit of an, an enabler, but also Jane herself has her own issues as her own, her own, her own self separate from K. That's why she has no motivation to remove herself from Doom Manor. She is unable to stop falling into certain patterns in life. That are putting, that's putting not only herself in harm's way, but Kay, which was a, which was something they had foreshadowed earlier in the season, you know, putting Kay's life in jeopardy jeopardy. through, through decisions Jane's made. They also alluded to that same thing, I believe last season and maybe even the first season when they were going up against Mr. Nobody and the other members of the underground said what are you doing why are you helping these people our job is to protect Kay, and by helping these people your so-called friends you're putting her you're putting her in danger so this has been a this is a reckoning that's been long time coming yeah and that's why i love the i guess the symbolism or the 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 imagery of jane tearing down the the pillow fort the the protective tent because at the end of the day, Jane is the one who ha- is the destructive behavior. It's not any of the other personalities. It's Jane. So when she throws her tantrum and tears everything down, that moment when she stops, crawls out from underneath that stuff, and then just takes a look at what she's done, it's like that ultimate realization that, that that's her breakthrough, that she comes to realize she's the problem. It's not. It hasn't been Dr. Harrison or Hammerhead. It's been Jane this whole time because Jane's in a in a very twisted way is the enabler. She's the one that basically she's the, she's the cancer that needs to be she's cut the out. cancer and that needed that, to be cut out of K. That's the sad thing. And if again, going back to removing the toxic aspects of your life, 
as we had mentioned with uh, Cliff and his daughter, the same thing is happening here uh, twofold. You have Kay wanting to remove the cancer from her life, which is Jane, and then Jane's inability to remove the cancer, which is the positions, or I should say the situations that she places herself in, like getting rid of toxic people out of your life. And if she were to do some something healthy for Kay, you know what she would have done? She would have left, she would have left Doom Manor. She would have actually listened to the other personalities the, uh, within the underground that t- asked her to leave what the beginning of the second season they they said remember they didn't didn't they lock her out because she refused to leave yeah yeah so they they've been trying to get her to leave and that's interesting because as it turns out the underground as a whole was actually right yeah everything they've been trying to do and convince jane to do was actually in the best interest of K. And it's it, for, for us as the audience, I think that was one of the more interesting twists because for two and a half seasons, we've been cheering on Jane helping out being part of doom patrol. But in actuality, in this episode, it turns out that the one thing that we all want Jane to do is the one thing that puts the most danger to the person who's most important, which is Kay. Yeah. Jane has not made the greatest decisions. Look at what happened last season as well. Because of her involvement with the Doom Patrol, she allowed the Candlemaker to enter into the underground and kill numerous identities. (laughs) So she has made poor decisions. And it's interesting because it was just what a great writing technique because they've subverted what we thought was going to happen or yeah. what they thought or what we thought they were trying to say this whole time. This whole time I felt like they were trying to paint the underground as not villains. We get that they're not bad necessarily, but they are uh, in opposition to Jane's actions. And because Jane is our main character in the show from a writing standpoint, we find ourselves rooting for Jane, but in all actuality, we probably should have been rooting for the underground because as it turns out, they were right. Yeah, because like the thing I really liked about Jane's story too was the the use of the idea that all the personalities, including Jane, are puppets. I love that. And, she, and that's so Kay, good. Kay is the quote unquote host of the the Sesame Street style uh, show, but she's the real human. Yeah, and it really brought uh, brought it centerfold, showing that yes, Jane is an individual person. But at the end of the day, she's still one of the puppets. And that's why they've been driving that point home pretty much all season. How many times have we heard Jane say, we're a fucking construct? We're not real. Yes. Because they were dropping those narrative plants that we always talk about. When you have an idea that you want to pay off in episode eight or nine, you need to start dropping them very soon. Within episode one, two, three, you got to start giving us those uh, pieces of evidence that you've been planning. And this has been the direction you've been going all season because then it creates a more consistent flow to the overall season and the narrative, the narrative of the season. So I love it. It works. I love when shows show that they have actually planned out everything because in this day and era of TV, you can tell from episode to episode many times that 
the showrunner and writers have no fucking idea what's happening from week to week. Because if they did, they wouldn't introduce a fix to a problem in the exact same episode that the problem arises in. Arises in, yes. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's talk about Larry. Larry's problem with his subconscious self had to do with what he said the moment he decided to commit to a lie. Yes. This part to me was extremely well done because we know Larry has made big improvements, one of which is accepting who he is. And now that he understands what he did to his life and his family, he regrets that he hid who he was for so long. Yeah. So Larry's problem is the part of his subconscious that represents his lie, that guilt, uh, that shame, you know, that his subconscious self is stuck in makes sense for it to affect the conscious self. But the lesson between the two of them was relatively simple. You got to let go and move on because yeah. that part of him is dragging the conscious. I should say that part of his subconscious self is dragging the conscious self down. down. Yeah, because the conscious self won't get past won't get past agreeing to the lie well the fact that larry still has this part of his subconscious self as a big element that is living in this loop has to tells us a lot about where he is currently in the show because several seasons back or two seasons back even last season let's say this part of his subconscious self might not have been the part that's dragging him down because he was unaware that he committed to a lie. He stood by that lie until he realized that is why he's fucked up. So the fact that he has made such great progress and that's why I like it because they didn't take away and they did the same thing with Vic. They did not take away all the progress they made Yeah, with, with Cliff and Jane they haven't really made a lot of progress. They have. They have. But not nearly as much as, say, Larry and and Vic and Rita. So having them use those aspects for their subconscious self works perfectly. And with Larry, I'm glad they didn't go back and regurgitate, regurgitate. and say yeah. this is his problem. No, instead, it's a newly evolved problem from the subconscious self. And it goes right back to that theme from the beginning of the season about letting go and moving on. He's got to let go. He's got to quit regretting that because there's nothing to be done. And if he can break that loop, that aspect will quit dragging him down. And that's why that comment by the subconscious self version of Larry, when he said, we are doing this to them, there's something that we're doing that is dragging them down. Yeah. And he, and it, it goes back to even the relationship that he has or he had with the negative spirit, because remember was yeah. the one thing that Larry learned with his relationship with the, with the negative spirit, his own sadness and his own self hate yeah. was hurting the spirit. Yeah. And that's why the spirit wanted to leave because, you know, it couldn't take it anymore and Larry wouldn't let it go. Yeah. And I, I really, I like how you, you pointed out that it's it's the, the, the situation and the trauma or the, the problem with Larry is like, they took it to a new development. Yeah. And 
It wasn't regurgitated, but it was just changed enough to show a different side. Yeah, it's, of a the var- it's a variation yeah. of, of similar problems we've seen. And, and it makes sense based on on his progress. And the uh, the one character, though, that I think that that fit perfectly was Vic, this one. Because I didn't expect his problems with his dad. We were always expecting his dad to be a certain way. Yeah. But then they flipped the script on it by basically kind of bringing in this element that his dad was coming at not as a father, but as a black man with his trauma. He was teaching him the hard. He was the hard truth. The hard truth of reality. The hard truth of reality. And maybe it could have been done with a little more finesse. I mean, you can't. I mean, that is pretty fucking dark. You can't afford people like us can't make mistakes. Yeah. And I mean, when he talk said about that, instilling fear into your child, into your child, I can understand. Uh, and this is not saying that basically as a minority parent, you can't ever do that to your child, but there's a time and place. And Silas just chose the wrong time for, to tell that to, to his son. Yeah. And because and, his son was a kid. Yeah. And at first I thought that political statement was a little, um, on the nose, but it made sense. It, it did make sense after we saw everything else that Vic was working through. And out of the four, obviously excluding Rita, Vic seems to be doing the best. His subconscious self told him as much and also encouraged him to keep going, keep making progress. Yeah, even if it's the wrong answer, it's still you making that choice. Yes. And Vic's subconscious self was interesting. Uh, it manifested itself as a toy soldier. I think that was that was actually probably one of my favorite ones. Besides, you know, like the atypical Brendan Fraser moment and everything else. But just character wise, the toy soldier had so many going for it. It was definitely cool how they utilized it because it represented a couple things. It represented a loop. That's the more obvious in his childhood that symbolizes Uh, A few things. Number one, it was the end of his childhood and the moment he tried to live as a soldier. That was when he was forced to grow up. When his father said those words, he needed to grow up. And in order to live up to his father's expectations, he became the soldier. soldier. And by doing so, he never fully enjoyed his childhood. That's why the subconscious self told him to have some fun. And this moves into number two. Uh, childhood, particularly, I just say childhood in general, particularly your teen years, is where you really start to discover who you are. Your identity forms from that self discovery. And as we learn, Vic attempted to fashion himself as a soldier. He skipped or ignored one of the most important parts of adolescence how you identify. And he, was, he wasn't able to because he, Breeze right past that aspect of his childhood. And the idea, this idea of identity being a source of Vic's problems was strengthened because this is something that he's been working through all season. Who is he? Is he Vic? Is he cyborg? What does he want to be? Does he want to be a weapon? Does he want to be a, um, a figure of peace without violence? This has been something that has been going back and forth with Vic. The idea of identity being a source of his problems and it was strengthened when Vic was searching the toys to find a black superhero toy, looking to find, even as a child, looking to find some type of representation 
that would validate who he was and his identity. And then look, the the thing that he's left with is choosing a black soldier. And the one thing that just drove it home for me was the fact that he symbolizes a soldier who does not question anything. Just do what you're told. Well, because it's a, it's an, it's a mixture of a few things. It's his own issues of identity combined with this detached type of parenting brought yeah. on by his father. That's who his subconscious self at that moment represented. And that's I, why the the toy looked like the father. Yeah. And I, I was like going, I didn't think, I, I thought they were going to go. Remember a couple episodes ago, we were kind of contemplating that Silas was going to turn into a villain. Yeah. And he, you know, he was going to be the big, he was going to be a bad, bad guy in the future seasons. At this point, they took the the character of Silas and basically now we understand he's not a bad person. He just, just like all of the characters of Doom Patrol, made a bad decision yeah. and a bad choice. Does it make him a bad person? No. I, I mean. I think he's just not a great father. I don't think he's evil. Yeah. I never thought he was evil. I thought he might have been working um, on weapons for star labs that Ronnie was a part of. And yeah, he might've been a part of the whole conspiracy that Ronnie was a part of, but I never thought he was going to be a straight up villain because Silas is never a villain, right? In the comic books. No. And I think too many fans would be like, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you making Silas a villain? Oh yeah. But the, but the way they took him in this episode, I'm like going, okay, now we can fully say Silas just isn't a bad guy. He, and it goes back to what you were saying. There's not truly bad guys in Doom Patrol. No, the antagonists are themselves. The antagonists are themselves. Yeah, these are obstacles. And and the father is just fits into the whole Doom Patrol theme of bad parents. If you look at every one of our characters, what's at the the, the stem of many of their problems? Bad parents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of them. All of them. Larry had horrible homophobic parents. Parents, religious parents like his mom. Cliff had a redneck upbringing. And uh, he neglect. himself. Yeah. Yes. And then Rita had a mother that fucked for her daughter's <laughs> career. career. And if you have Jane, yeah. you could honestly a look at a rapist father. A rapist father. And also you can look at Niles. Niles was supposed yeah. to be that parental Niles figure to also Jane. is a bad father. And he was a bad father. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's move into Rita, which is a complicated, beautiful mess. It is. It is right now. Narratively speaking. And I like that you said it is as of now because now. it could be straightened out. I have not watched ahead, so I don't know. But as of right now, I feel like it would be remiss of me not to say that it felt like a con convoluted mess. It all makes sense. I'm not saying it doesn't make sense, but there's a lot of assumptions that's left to the audience. On top of that, yes, we are left to make assumptions, but then at the same time, they gave us so much exposition to explain things, which yeah. is not great writing. You don't have, you don't build this mystery up for eight episodes so you can then just tell us in a monologue what's been going on. Yeah, and the fact that they did that. Not just with one character, but three, yes. Rita, Laura, and some rando voiceover, <laughs> yes. which is, I will say, awful, awful writing. Because it didn't make any sense. It's just, 
you you make things abstract and hard to understand for some things, but then the things that you should probably keep a little more subtle, you just spill it all over the place. Yeah. So l- let's let's talk the easy stuff first. Let's talk okay. about the good stuff. Okay. So Rita wasn't at odds with her subconscious. So let's keep it no. on track or on par or parallel with our other characters. Rita wasn't at odds with her subconscious self because she does not have memories of her past. There's nothing dragging her down. Yes. That's the beautiful thing about her story this season. Cause we were able to see how she would live her life. If she didn't have all that emotional baggage. And interestingly, look at what she's been able to accomplish because of all of that without that baggage she's taken steps and directions old rita would never have taken she's enjoyed life in ways old rita would never have thought possible and all of this was because she has no subconscious self to contend with but if you think about it too the thing about rita that i found really interesting at least in this aspect rita has uh, throughout the entire season since season one We've been watching Rita do what? Want to become a hero, right? And in this regard, she didn't really, she's not really doing something heroic. She's something, she's doing something out of revenge. That's why I like that moment when Cliff basically makes the comment. So is this, are we doing this for the flagellation? Or are we doing this for revenge? <laughs> what are we doing this for? And I'm like, going, he just brought up a good point. Rita has been saying that I'm doing this for the good of every, uh, of everybody, but in actuality she wants vengeance. Yeah. Which I like that's, that's proper motivation. It's proper and motivation. We'll talk about lack of motivation in a second. <laughs> the part where it gets convoluted is when we see Rita getting into the time machine and heading back into her time. Yes. But didn't she live through the last 70 plus years plotting the data mission? Exactly. The flagellation, like, so if she, she went back, said, she even said that she lived over, through the past 70 years. So which one is it? Did she live from 1917 to as Rita, member of the Sisterhood of Dada, where she would plan the eternal flagellation? Or did she head back in the time machine and left her sisterhood to wait around until 2021? And if she if she did leave the sisterhood. Doesn't that mean that she would then have to deal with the amnesia stuff again? Well, it's a bit confusing what happened to her. Maybe the time machine thing was a flashback before her reveal as a member of the sisterhood. So maybe that random voiceover that we were given telling us what Rita was doing, maybe that happened before the events of the last episode when she made her grand debut. Maybe. See, do you see though? That's what I'm talking about. Assumptions. We are left exactly. to assume things that they didn't clarify, which are, and I'm not, a, I think people that know this, that listen to our shows know that I am not a stickler for over explaining things. In fact, I like to try to figure things out on my own. I feel like it's better television, uh, movies, books. I feel the same way. I like to interpret within reason. Well, you you, you got to give me something to interpret, but when you just have plot holes in in an episode, that's not leaving room for interpretation. That's leaving room for assumptions because you're not giving us enough to fill in the blanks. And, and it was, it's, for me, it's really frustrating in this in regards to this episode because you have moments when you, they show that they're not using assumption and trying not to do that. Especially like in the very beginning of the scene when they had to explain the flagellation was going on, 
All they had to do flagellation nope. or the flagellation, not flagellation. Flag- flagellation. But you're, you're trying not to say flagellation, so you're saying flagellation. Flagellation. Now I'm saying it wrong. Flagellation. <laughs> flagellation. Flagel. Flag. Flag. The, f- the flagellation, flagellation was going. <laughs> it was going on, but no one had to say it. The the most subtle thing they did was show a newscast. Yeah. And in doing that, that shows that they're trying not to do exposition and yeah and narration, but. Then they choose really odd moments to do exposition. It's like they didn't know what to do to to bring everything together. And that's really sad because you had a, a show that has been written so well this season. Up to this point. And then you give us an episode that's, you know, mess. again, it's a mess. Take, let's take out, let's remove the four subconscious self elements, which were amazing and very telling of our characters. The metaphysical aspects of the episode were utterly fantastic. but. The overall episode was written very bad. Yes. I mean, okay. It's, so, it, David, are there two Ritas then? Like, can we say, is there yeah, one? Exactly. Then, because she also said that she is the one, she clarified that she is the one that stopped quickly to quickly. make sure that her other self would die. Yes. So that her romance loop. I believe is what they said would continue. Would continue. So if that loop is continuing, that means, temporarily speaking, <laughs> Rita from the past, yeah, could live on through seventy years. It depends on what came first. So that's why I'm I'm over here completely scratching your head, scratching my head, wondering what happened. Are there two Ritas? Which I don't know if logically. That would make sense, but we do need some clarification and I'm hoping we get that because if this is how they leave it, because I'm going to go back and watch the last episode, but I swear that they had said that Rita lived through the last 70 years. Yeah. Same here. Same here. I, I actually remember them saying that Rita lived throughout this entire time. Plotting with the sisterhood of Dada. Plotting with the sisterhood of Dada, right? So... What about the the Rita that was there, the second Rita that was there throughout the seven years? I know, I know. So either way, the voiceover, the magical voiceover, basically basically confirmed what we had asked last episode. What will happen when she travels back to the future? So this part was fine. Will the Ritas? Let me let me let me find a way to rephrase this. <laughs> Because that's why I'm saying it's so convoluted. Will Rita's separate lives merge, right? Because they said that in the voiceover. But the question is, how will, and I believe this is the question they also posed in the voiceover, how will her insecurity and narcissism from old Rita affect or alter the healthier Rita? Rita? Now, this part was very smart because the writers essentially did a variation of the conscious self and subconscious self. But with Rita, the conscious self would be the new Rita and the subconscious self would be OG Rita. OG Rita. So that was a pretty cool aspect. I have some problems with some of the (laughs) the way they executed that whole bit. It could have been been a really cool concept. But the problem is this is the problem you have with time travel. 
because like it, it, it makes things so confusing. But that's also just one of what five elements we just went over. That's that is creating some issues. Yeah. So the time travel, you're right. But let's say we remove the time travel. We're still getting confused by what you're trying to say here. Say here. And I have some problems with Lord DeMille's characterization. And that's sad because uh, Lord DeMille has been amazing all season. Her story was very interesting. And now we get this odd, inconsistent characterization. Uh, there seems to be inconsistencies that hinge on motivation as a character. What's her motivation though? Yeah. Why did she suddenly become bad over 30 years? What happened to her? How did she go from caring about her friends to turning on them? I feel like we're missing something. Oh, absolutely. Especially since, okay, her motivation to join the brotherhood of evil was because they want to, um, they want to basically defeat Niles. So and, hold on a second, but before you, we gotta, we gotta address the other elephant in the room first, before you get into that. Okay, Dave, why did the Bureau of Normalcy shit can DeMille exactly. for what she did to the sisterhood of Dada when she was doing what they asked? Exactly. Unless. The so that only, doesn't make sense. Because the only way it makes sense, Mike, is if you assume, there's the big word, assume that Niles was responsible for actually kicking uh, DeMille. DeMille out because he he looks he looks at what the, she did to the sisterhood of Dada and basically says no she doesn't deserve to be part of the nor- Bureau of Normalcy and kicks her out. Maybe the death of the however what's his name? Um, I forget his name, but the death of the birdcage guy. Yes, maybe that wasn't supposed to happen. It wasn't and that's supposed why to she got shit canned. But either way, you're right, Dave. You said, what did you say? That we have to assume. assume. <laughs> we have to assume and that that's, that's a, it. And that's a big assumption. And like, that's not a little assumption because we are literally just going with, with writing common sense. That's it. And do you realize we've gone through the whole season, right? With, with Laura never actually interacting on screen with Niles yeah. to all of a sudden, I hate fucking Niles Calder. Yeah, why? why? Give us some motivation. <laughs> Show us something. I don't understand why you hate the guy. Now, let's say they did not get rid of Timothy Dalton this season. And I think in retrospect, they probably shouldn't have. If they would have given him a three or four episode arc that showed his opposition towards DeMille in 19-whatever, 1940 through 1949, whatever it may be. And then we can see how they were butting heads and it, it, it built to this accident where she killed the birdcage guy. And then he shit cans her because he never really liked her. Anyways, he saw something evil in her, something that was off in her personality. Maybe she's, you know, a borderline sociopath. Maybe he's the one who figured that out. And that's why he never liked her. Then that suddenly fixes so many problems, but they didn't do that. And honestly, people may think, Dave, oh, well, you know what? That you're asking them to throw yet another ball into the air and have Carver juggle. And I would say, yes, you're right. That is a lot. But that would take maybe three or four minutes per episode to do. Exactly. It's not a lot of time. And the thing I'm worried about, Mike, because I thought about this, what if they're saving that stuff for okay. next season or even the next two episodes? Maybe I, I don't, we don't know see that happening, but it's still bad writing if, in my opinion. Um, if they, yeah, it is. 
It is. It is. It, it is. There's nothing they can do now to fix the issues with DeMille for this season because they're, we don't know any motivation. Why did she go from being super cool and nice to these people, wanting to save them from being weapons, to becoming this standoffish oh, hate monger? It doesn't make any sense. Her recruitment into the Brotherhood of Evil was weak. Yeah. And her mission was to steal Niles' inventions so the Brotherhood can make them first. It just feels very anticlimactic. Well, and if you think about the the scene, too, now in retrospect, still makes her motivation no sense is the last episode where she has that conversation with the uh, head agent mm-hmm. that talks to her about, hey, we got to make numbers. And, last episode? Yeah, the last yeah. episode. And that still that still doesn't even explain no. her motivation. I was looking at that as potential motivation and I didn't yeah. even I didn't even put it in the notes because I'm like, you know what? Let's it's say, let's say they did intend that to be the, her motivation. It's still not enough. Still not enough. Because the guy is pushing in one sentence, he says you got to reach your quota. That's going to push her to be evil. Exactly. There needed to be repercussions. She needed to be threatened. The guy should have. And usually I don't like sitting here telling people how to write their shows because it's not my show. I typically like to be objective and give my thoughts based on what was given. But in a scenario like this, I feel like because we are writers, we can offer some concrete advice on what would have fixed the episode. And in my opinion, they could have had a moment or two throughout the the previous six or seven episodes where this guy is a D bag to her and continues to pressure her into reaching her quotas, making sure she's not hiding or stashing people away. And he uncovers this and then pushes her into the situation where she herself would be turned into a weapon or give up your friends. I'll tell you, it's still a shitty decision for her to make, but at least that's motivation. I'll take it even a step further for you, Mike. You know what would really made it much more easier? Replace the guy, the lead agent, with Niles Calder. What? Because if you made the if you made that moment of Niles talking to her, then it makes sense to us for and get for the, rid of the whole quota situation. Get all, rid of the whole quota yeah. situation because we already know Niles when he was back in the Bureau of Normalcy was not a nice dude. He was a D-bag. But he also <laughs> left. He was a good person. He left because he didn't like the direction they were exactly. going. So, dude, I, there are so many things they could have done differently. And that's why I'm a little frustrated. Because if I look at a show and I'm, I shrug and say, well, that wasn't great. But I look at everything else they gave that came before and there's no other decisions they <laughs> could have made. made. You know, I'm like, okay, you know what? This is the only thing they could have done. But just in the last five minutes, David. We just came up with some different scenarios i don't i don't get it and maybe we're jumping the gun maybe things will smooth out in those final two episodes but unfortunately i feel i feel sad that this season has been so good and then this last episode just kind of shits out a turd and that's not to say that it didn't give us some good gems some great amazing things but at the same time when you look at how it's written and the reveals it's it's poor. And especially since it would have been one thing if the side stories were written badly, but you're dealing with the main story arc, which is Rita and Laura. You can't afford to write badly with that narrative. 
And that's yeah. what that's what hurts this episode so much is like everything else, like what you said, was phenomenal. All the character development with all the Doom Patrol members, fantastic. But your main narrative made you you see the red flags popping up and that yeah. just takes you out of the entire episode. Yeah, for sure. Now, this episode, if people are interested, I put this towards the end of the episode cuz if you're not into getting into if you're not into getting into all the the muddy areas of <laughs> philosophy, philosophy, it is a a thing of mine that I love and I know you love it too, Dave, yeah. so we do have a lot to say about it. But I know the previous two episode discussions, we've delved pretty deep into into some of that stuff, and it just may not be interesting to our listeners. So I put it towards the end for this discussion. But if people want to learn a little bit more about what was actually being utilized for a lot of this episode, number one, it's metaphysics, which is one of the branches of philosophy that studies the first principles of being, identity, change, and space and time causality, necessity, and possibility. And it includes questions about the nature of consciousness and the relationship between mind and matter. So that's what this episode used as a as an aesthetic and thematic anchor. And one reading that you might want to look into if you're interested in finding out more, it isn't an easy read, but it is fun and interesting if you have the patience to interpret what's being said and it's the meditations of Descartes which is uh, a very renowned philosopher he was Christian and the purpose of his meditations were were originally designed to prove that God exists is what he was trying to do personally I think his mind is amazing but his conclusions he draws pertaining to God is a bit weak but that's just me as a as a what's an armchair critic? Is that the terminology? That's the terminology for yeah. armchair critic. So look into Descartes if you want. It's spelled D E S C A R T E S, and the Meditations is the collection of thoughts, and that is also the foundation for a lot of simulation theory as well. I'm sure many people have heard. Of simulation theory, if you're not sure what that is, Matrix, just think about the Matrix. Yeah. The Matrix was <laughs> built on the concept of Plato's cave as well as Descartes' meditations. Yes. It's the idea that you're not quite sure you're here. And if I am, I need to prove it by thinking. And it's also that it's the famous you, say, I think therefore there you go. I am. Yes. Everyone has heard that. Yes. And that's from Descartes. So check it out. It's really interesting. I've read it a couple times and I still pick things out. Oh, I, I, I love that. I love that part of philosophy because so many concepts and so many fun concepts are used nowadays, especially in doom patrol. I mean, the, the brain of the jar concept from, I think that is from part of me says it is from Descartes. Oh, the brain in the jar the brain in the jar. You, you are right. Is yeah. the same one. And yeah. you, you can, if, People really want to dive into understanding what me and you just rally for in Doom Patrol. Just pick up a philosophy book and it, you you will see. You will see. Open your mind. Yeah. Now, there's also another aspect. And if I butcher these words, I apologize. 
in some of Descartes' writings, he um, suggested a place where an interaction took place, which has a lot to do with the subconscious and consciousness that the writers for Doom Patrol used for this episode. Yes. This interaction was something that Descartes actually had rambled on in many of his writings. And he felt through his analysis and discoveries that this interaction takes place in a place in a part of our brain where a particular, um, oh, let me look it up. Cause I, I, I'm sounding like an idiot now. Hold on. It's a part of the brain where our, one of our, I will cut this. The pineal gland is located. Yes. And I believe that's how you say that. The pineal gland. Okay. So a lot of people believe this is where the third eye is located. Yeah. It's when it comes to the Indian mysticism, which the Indians were amazing when it came to the process of the metaphysics. Yeah. So the third eye, if you guys don't know what that is, is literally what people call uh, the area that allows you to see more and perceive more. It's it's the area that basically a lot of people delve into with when it comes to dreams. The eye and of insight. The eye of insight, yes. Yeah. And like when you think about it, it for for you know the layman's out there that are trying oh, to Oh the layman, look at you. You take fucking for layman's. example take for example a show like Sherlock, where Sherlock enters his mind palace. The mind palace is basically a, a concept like that. That's a visual concept that people can understand Yeah, where people, where you dive into your third eye and gain insight into yourself. And an even more overt example would be Dr. Strange. Yes. The third eye is a mystical and esoteric concept of a speculative, invisible eye, usually depicted as located on the forehead, which provides perception beyond ordinary sight. I think most people have heard of the eye of Providence, which I believe is on the dollar bill. Yeah. So there's a lot of semiotics connected to the third eye. So we can go on for like five years on that topic, but <laughs> easily this does bring us to the end of our discussion. I want to thank everyone for listening, but first Dave, we got to give our RMD scores. Uh, RMD score. Do you want me to start? Um, let me start this time. Okay. Okay. So if I was basing this solely on writing, <laughs> it would no no joke. It'd probably be the lowest score I've ever given an episode of Doom Patrol because I believe this might be the sloppiest script over the last three seasons. I'd probably give this a seventy-four, maybe wow. a seventy. Okay, okay, but what they did with our characters, with the conscious self versus the subconscious self. And the amount of substance they derived from that and what we learned about our characters was so well done. On top of that, the acting was amazing. The bizarro down the rabbit hole vibe, the aesthetics all worked as well to help with this notion of the subconscious. And because of that, because that was so well done, much of it built on the backs of the rest of this season, which the previous episodes of the season, which have been extraordinary. So that's probably why this episode worked as well as it did, despite the shoddy script. So I'm going to give this episode an 84%. Okay. 
You gave it 84. Yes. Okay. I, I'm going to be going to be honest because the funny part is your original score <laughs> is where I actually Yeah, landed. because that's where it should be. But. Because that's where it should be. Because, like, I agree with you. All the other stuff that was in here was wonderful. I loved the brain and Monsieur Mala moments. I thought those were funny. They fit the characters. The dialogue of those two make me giggle because... That's the type of dialogue you, you'd expect out of these villains. Yeah. and But also, David, we're supposed to believe that. I know this is not real. This is a TV show. And there's a uh, there's a sense of, what's that terminology? Uh, a sense of disbelief that disbelief. we must subscribe to. I yes. understand that. But the fact that they built a time machine <laughs> based yes. on taking photos. Based Never photos. mind what's inside. That actually makes the time machine work. We're going to take a picture, picture of, of it of the structure of the architecture, and through that we can reverse engineer, reverse engineer a time machine. It. That is fucking dumb. dumb. But for me, that works for those characters. But yes, I totally agree with you. It is dumb, and it and the problem is the 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 mistakes. And I I I, I totally feel that these are mistakes in the script. Yeah, without a doubt. The mistakes for Laura and and Rita absolutely outweigh everything because the problem is the main story arc is Laura and Rita. So if if you mess up that, I don't care how shiny the other parts are. Yeah. The the story just falls flat. So I actually came up with a 75 for this episode. It is by far the lowest I have ever given yeah. a Doom Patrol episode. Yeah. Because like I loved everything else with the other characters, but they're not the main myth arc. Yeah. They're not the main story. I'm very conflicted. I said that when you walked into the studio today. I was like, I'm very conflicted. I don't know how to feel about this episode because there's so much to love. But when it comes down to it critically, critically, it's not good in the ways of writing. I have writing. Be, especially... I'm so steadfast on making it a 75 because what they've done with the character of Rita up to this point has been so epic. Yeah. Did we even mention the, the, the random voiceover? Yes. That is such shit. The random voiceover. If you were going to have a voiceover, then you probably should have had it all season. Otherwise this feels like a big writing cheat. Exactly. Well, How are we going to explain this? Let's have a random voiceover from some rando character. And this isn't like Mr. Nobody. People no. may say, oh, but Mr. Nobody did random voiceovers, but it was very different. Mr. Nobody was designed to be a meta aspect, his voiceover, where he then spoke to the audience in order to break that fourth wall. So yes. his voiceovers worked with that episode's myth arc. Because it was his power set. Yes. That's his power set. And it was also established early on in the season. Yeah. This is random hackery. All right, go ahead. But, so 75%. Yeah, yeah, I have to stick to my guns and give it a 75. As much as I loved everything else with my favorite characters. I All mean, right. I, I feel you. You got to stick with the writing. Yeah. All right. I want to thank everyone. Buh, buh, buh. I want to thank everyone for listening. Be sure to check us out on Patreon. That is how we make our money. That is how we stay on the show. Without Patreon, we would not be doing these shows. And if we drop below a certain number, 
we won't be doing these shows. And that isn't a threat. That's just a fact. We're all adults. We have lots of things to do. We have other lives. We have other career goals. And we love doing this. But listen, we're getting to a point where we need people to pitch in if they want us to do these shows. And if you don't want to pitch in, that's fine. That tells me that what we're doing has no value and then that's going to dictate decisions moving into 2022. And I'm okay with that. I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm just speaking truths. If this show is not worthy enough to get you to do a review or a rating in iTunes, and it's not enough to motivate you, the thing that we do in this show is not enough to motivate you to go to Patreon and pledge a couple bucks here or there, then why are we doing this? David and I can sit down, have a beer and some chips, <laughs> chips and bullshit about film when we want to casually at our leisure. <laughs> right. We don't need the mics careful, to do it. Careful. That might be another show that we might do. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you everyone for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Bye bye. Thank God that's solved. Mint juleps.